coming up on Economics Explored. Whether it's through accident, their health being sacked, um, you know, lose, you know, being divorced, right, and losing the income of your partner, all sorts of reasons why suddenly you lose that income. Well, if you've got a UBI coming in, at least you've got enough to live on. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 137 on benefits and costs of a UBI, a universal basic income. I'm joined this episode by a retired Australian CEO in the manufacturing and logistics sectors, Michael Haynes, who has been doing a lot of thinking about the benefits of a UBI and how to cover its costs. This conversation will give you a good idea of what advocates of a UBI see as its major benefits. You'll also hear a discussion about the relevance of so-called modern monetary theory, MMT, to the UBI debate. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that I'm highly sceptical about both UBI and MMT, but I did my best to remain open-minded in my conversation with Michael. Please check out the show notes for relevant links, any clarifications, and for details of how you can get in touch with any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear from you. As Michael indicates in the discussion, he'd welcome your thoughts on his ideas and his proposal. So please send them my way and I'll pass them on to Michael. Righto, now for my conversation with Michael Haynes on the benefits and costs of a UBI. Thanks to my audio engineer, Josh Crotz, for his assistance in producing this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Michael Haynes, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Gene, very much for having me here. It's, um, I'm really excited to have the opportunity to speak to your audience, who is probably more educated than, uh, in these topics than uh, the people I normally speak with. So I'll be looking forward to any feedback you receive. Okay, yes. So keen to chat with you about universal basic income. I'm interested first in your journey to becoming an advocate for a UBI. Could you take us through that, please? What got you interested in this as an idea? And then we can go into what you okay. see as the merits of it. You've got time for a life journey, Gene. Um, well, please. Back in, uh, in the 1980s, I was group general manager of one of the top 200 public companies and um, first to actually, as far as I know, get involved in the use of trusts to minimise tax in, in a public company. And in the course of that, I guess I began to query myself as to the whole issue of why we pay tax and the complexities of our tax system and money system. And um, so through that, I just took a, a journey myself to explore you know, tax law, um, integration with the money system, banking system, and so on, and developed thoughts then around um, how we might integrate a flat tax system on spending with a flat payment, which is effectively a UBI, which would turn the um, tax on spending effectively into a, a progressive tax on income if it was structured correctly. So... I worked my way through that for quite a few years and um, talked to a few people about it, but it uh, really never gained any traction. I didn't have the uh, academic uh, background because I was involved in business to really 
progress it and, um, yeah, drift it over the years. And then um, I guess more recently it's become apparent that across the world there's a lot more interest in, uh, in a UBI and that spurred me to... Uh, I'm now 73, so I'm effectively retired. Um, it, it spurred me to um, do something about it. So a bit over a year ago, I got involved with a group called Basic Income Australia. And through them, I undertook the task to write a, a policy document, which is about 111 pages long. Um, I don't expect anybody to read it. It was really aimed at capturing um, our understanding of um, all of the ins and outs of a UBI across the world, the pilots that have been undertaken, what they tell us, what the academic community feels about it, pros and cons, and then to, um, I guess, evolve the ideas that I hope to talk to you today about, which we believe um, provides a, a bit of a different wrinkle to how a UBI um, is seen and how it can be implemented with um, relatively low risk. So that's my okay. journey. <laughs> right. And can you tell us a bit about Basic Income Australia, please? Uh, who's involved in it? And It's just a small group um, that was started by a guy uh, called Justin B a few years ago. He's um, a highly talented um, mechatronics engineer. He's, well, he's just qualified and... Um, he took an interest in the UBI quite a few years ago and, you know, gathered together a group of uh, uh, miscellaneous uh, miscreants and, um, who had a similar interest. And uh, so it's not uh, a professional group. It really is a, a cross-section of people who are interested in seeing the um, basic income uh, become a reality in Australia. So um, I guess I've... Uh, endeavoured to bring some sort of uh, more rigour into the specifications of what a UBI might entail, uh, and that was through the process of writing that policy document. So I'd be very interested, as I was speaking to you earlier, to get the feedback from your audience as mm. to what they think about the proposal. Oh, absolutely, and I'll put a link to that uh, policy document and some other articles that you've you've prepared I think you were telling me about some Medium articles. Is that right? I've just completed a series or nearly completed a series of about seven articles that look at the rationale for UBI, compare it with welfare and the job guarantee, uh, look at how we can implement it without increasing taxes or debt or taking money from other programs or incurring uh, excessive inflation. So that sounds like magic, but we believe that there is a way to do it. Uh, another article then considers in more detail how to implement it with uh, low risk and then three papers looking at the benefits. Um, about 24 we've identified for individuals, about 19 or so, I think, so 17 for business and the economy and maybe 19 for government and, uh, and individuals. So that series, we hope um, they're only about a five-minute read each, should give people um, a good understanding of, uh, of what we're about. So it's interesting. You were thinking about this in the, the 80s and that it's recently that you've, you've come across this UBI idea that this is something that is, this idea is taking off worldwide. And uh, I'm trying to remember when I first heard about it, it probably would be in the last 
maybe five to ten years. It's associated with the sort of Silicon Valley yeah. uh, crowd in, and um, yeah. in America and, and BN um, as well, uh, Basic Income Earth Network, which Guy Standing and others um, have been involved in. And uh, so, yes, it's sort of, it, well, I think the history of it goes back to Thomas More and, and others. So we're, we're talking about people throwing these ideas around for a long time, but um, one of the biggest um, concerns people seem to have, and rightly so, is um, is the cost, because most people say that's a wonderful idea, and, um, you know, if I was to say, well, we're going to give everybody a super yacht, um, mm. <laughs> similarly, that's a great idea. Yeah, I'm all for getting my own super yacht, but, you know, quite realistically, we can't pay for it. So um, that's one of the major um, focus points that um, we've we've looked at. You know, how do we afford it? Yeah, yeah. We'll definitely uh, come to that. Uh, I just want to start off with. Well, before we get to that, I'd like to ask you: What do you see as the merits of a universal basic income? And I know that you've referred back to, well prehistory in a way, haven't you, in thinking about that? So could you take us through what you see as the merits of it, please? If we go back to prehistory, um, every human born had a basic birthright, which was to live off the land. Um, and the richness of the land would determine basically how well you lived, but that birthright was there regardless. With the advent of property rights, money, and our system of paid work, that is no longer available for most people to live off the land. Um, it's meant that the human species now, at least in the developed world, is absolutely reliant on money. You, you have to have money if you want to buy a sandwich down the street, a bottle of water. Uh, it doesn't matter what. Um, money is the source or the access point for the resources that you need to survive. And so... Given that, um, we then have to look at, well, um, while this whole new system has been really advantageous for the great bulk of people, lifting living standards, health and so on, for a section of the population, um, it has really left them out. Um, about 12 to 14% of the population in most of the developed world live in poverty, um, they're mostly single women with kids, um, aged, disabled, uh, they're unpaid carers, mostly family, and also people uh, who are between jobs, uh, who um, all of whom lack savings and family support. So in Australia, as we said, that's about 3.2 million people and 17% of all children. So it's an indictment not of those individuals but of the system that they are living in a pot in poverty in what is essentially a very wealthy country so there is no doubt that we have the resources to ensure everybody has enough to survive food clothing housing and so on so what is lacking is neither the resources nor the money right we, we create the money so what is, the problem is, is getting the money into the hands of people who need it. And the way that we've traditionally done that is through welfare. Um, but welfare comes with a poverty trap. 
and that is it is perfectly rational for a person to look at a benefit and say, um, I'm going to take the benefit instead of this shitty low-paid job. So it's nothing to do with moral failings. It's, you know, you and I, given the choice between the two, are going to say, well, I'm going to take the low-paid benefit. So it is then perfectly rational for government to say, well, hang on, we've got work out there that needs to be done. Uh, we've got people who are capable of doing it. So we must keep the benefits really low in order to encourage those people to take the work that's available. And that works in the main, right? <laughs> people, if they can get off the, the, the welfare benefit and into work and they can do it, they will. But there is a whole section of the population who cannot do paid work, which, as I said, is the single women who are caring for kids and their carers and for the aged and so on. So that is, it's creating a poverty trap which we could solve with more welfare or higher benefits if we absolutely could guarantee the ability to identify those people who genuinely can't work at any time and have a real-time system that as soon as people fell into poverty or came out of it, we could always capture them immediately. Um, and some countries do that better than others, but nobody has really solved it because, as we said, across the world right now, we are faced with 10, 11, 12, 14% of the population who are in poverty. So what we've looked at is said, well, a universal basic income in which everybody has, as of right, a payment to ensure they can meet their needs, well, then they've got that money. There's no need to apply. There's no need to justify. And if you suddenly find yourself without an income, so most people are, are at risk of losing that income overnight, um, whether it's through accident, their health being sacked, um, you know, lose, you know, being divorced, right, and losing the income of your partner, all sorts of reasons why suddenly you lose that income. Well, if you've got a UBI coming in, at least you've got enough to live on. And so, um, yeah, that's, well, I guess, what we saw as the rationale for a, a UBI, but we've also identified over 50-odd benefits that once you do have it in place, will flow from it. Um, so um, I don't know where you'd like to go from here. I can talk through how we might fund it, um, how we can introduce it, we believe, with low risk, and what some of the benefits are. Oh, yeah, I'm keen to stay on the benefits for a while. I mean, what do you see as those uh, as those benefits? I mean, you talked about the fact that it has a it uh, is an income redistribution tool. It uh... well, can I stop you there, Gene? I don't see it as an income redistribution tool, and this is why it's necessary to explain how we see funding it, because. We don't believe it is necessary to take anything away from anybody in order to ensure that everybody has the basics, simply because we do have the resources in Australia to feed people, to clothe them, and ultimately to house them. Uh, what we don't have is the mechanism to get the money into people's hands. And so we believe we can do it without redistribution, which is what I'd like to explain. But if we put that aside for the moment and, again, just look at the benefits, um, for a, a very simple one, it would reduce for an individual reliance on debt. So 
no more payday loans and stresses that that brings. Um, it provides, as we sort of indicated, um, yeah, income and in, basic income insurance because if you lose your job, at least you've got that money coming in to, to live on. Um, it eliminates, as we said, the welfare poverty trap. Uh, it eliminates bureaucracy for people. You no longer have to be worried about, you know, these mutual obligations and ticking boxes and just going through the hoops for the sake of, quotes, proving your entitlement. Um, mm. It has the eliminates uh, uh, social stigma and intrusion into your life um, because you're just getting it as of right like everybody else is. Um, it underpins lifelong learning. It means that people who might want to take some time off to do a short course will cut back their hours, say, well, I can't do that. I'm struggling to meet my, you know, daily needs. With the UBI coming in, it will assist them in that. Um, it empowers people also to do the right thing. So we know that people through the threat of poverty are forced to do unsafe, illegal and unethical work. And we're now, as a society, getting to the stage where we're um, recognising the need for consent in the bedroom. A UBI empowers people to um, have that same consent in the workplace, to be able to say, no, this is unsafe, this is illegal, this is um, unethical. It provides um, flexibility too for where you might work and the type of work you do because it gives you some income to actually move to where the work is. If you are destitute, it's all very well to say, you know, there's um, new work in New South Wales, but how do I get there and my few goods from where I am to where the work is? But with the money coming in, it provides um, increases employment opportunities because um, what it means is that um, as the money gets spent into the economy, it is going to generate more demand, which will generate um, more uh, need for more labour. It provides some recognition for in-home uh, care and home maintenance and uh, looking after families and creating the social bonds that people do who are not in quotes paid work but maintaining those social bonds in the home are critical to a well-functioning society and at the moment. We don't place any monetary value on that and a UBI would by paying uh, a person um, to do that work in effect. Uh, it provides respite for home carers, so people who are struggling to look after aged and disabled now will have a bit more money to coming in to maybe put the person that they're looking after into care or taking some time themselves. Um, it actually adds to the income also of the aged and disabled. Um, we see it working such that the UBI would be treated as income under our existing welfare systems. So as the UBI increased, it would naturally reduce benefits, but the benefits would remain intact. And so depending on the level of the UBI, um, it would supplement um, the benefits that um, are netted from the existing system. So nobody can be worse off, but most people in that circumstance should be better off. Uh, another big factor is it uh, ought to reduce the incident of family violence and also facilitate escape because 
a lot of family violence is created from the financial stress that occurs when people are living on the edge. And so um, by alleviating that financial stress, which should reduce the incident of violence, but for women, and it's mostly women, who are caught in that sort of relationship they now um, find that they can't escape because wherever they're going to live, how are they going to survive? They've got no income. They've got no job. Whereas with the UBI, they've got that money coming in and can move um, anonymously and set up a new life. So it helps there. Uh, As we said, it enables escape from poverty. That's probably number one. It improves um, from around the world. We've seen studies where ensuring people have enough to live on, it improves their um, cognitive uh, function and um, improves behavioural disorders. Uh, It prevents suicide that is driven by financial stress, helps kids focus on schoolwork um, and higher education for the same reasons. It improves cognitive function. Um, and evidence from the pilots is that it also improves nutrition and, and in fact, reduced alcohol and uh, tobacco use. Right. Do you know which pilot that was? Yeah, I can give you the detail. I haven't got it off here, but I can certainly give you that. Um, And it would enhance self-determination, which is especially important for our First Nations people who have for a couple of centuries now been... Um, treated as a society of dependent individuals um, who have to be looked after and so on, whereas if we pay a UBI um, unconditionally to everybody, well, that includes those of our First Nations people who can then make their own decisions that um, they are able to thrive instead of just simply survive, um, especially by pooling their resources and so on. So, I mean... These aren't um, silver bullets. They're going to solve all the problems, but they are additive and uh, cumulative in the way that they can um, help us um, address some of these uh, issues. So that's just the 23-odd benefits for the individuals. There's a whole lot for, as I said, business and the economy, for government and um, and for um, the people in general. Um, I don't know whether you want me to go through all of those, how much time we've um, got. or I can put a link in the, the show notes to that list. Uh, yes. I want to ask about this concept of technological unemployment. Is that one of the motivating factors behind UBI? Uh, have you thought about that? Is that one of the reasons you'd advocate for it? Yes, absolutely. And so one of the things that we've looked at is that once we get the UBI to the poverty line, right, and there's a whole process to get there, um, you then, uh, what we're suggesting is, in fact, the UBI be set up and managed by a new authority under its own charter, independent of normal government. The funding would not go to um, the government deficit because the money would not be going to the government. It's actually going directly to the people. And so that authority would manage the money. Now, I've lost track of what the question was you asked me. I was asking, oh, about technological unemployment. Uh... Uh, So that authority then would have the um, capacity to say, well, 
we've now brought the UBI to um, the poverty line. If, as a result of automation and virtualization, we start to see a drop-off in employment, we can then increase the UBI and allow the market to rebalance dynamically uh, back to full employment because everybody has a different propensity to take on paid work depending on their age, the commitments, other money they might have coming in. And so as the UBI is raised, there will be people who say, huh, well, I will now live on this money with whatever else I might have. I'm no longer going to um, worry about looking for work. And so we can tell that as people um, drop out of uh, the workforce, we'll begin to see uh, a lengthening of standard recruitment times, the labour market will be seen to be tightening and the authority says, whoops, well, we don't need to go up any higher where we've gone as far as we need to go. Um, the market is back. So it gives the government through the authority a much more targeted or precise tool to help manage and balance the labour market than simply the cash rate through the Reserve Bank or fiscal spending, which is a very indirect means for um, managing it. But because the UBI is income for people, then as their incomes change, they will make real-time decisions about whether or not to move in or out of the labour market. So we, we see it as a very valuable new tool for the government to manage this um, you know, disruption. Um, personally, I don't see there's any end to work. There's going to be a never-ending requirement for people to be doing different things, but there will certainly be disruption in um, as traditional work is um, overtaken through automation and virtualization. Okay. I just thought I'd ask you that because my impression was that uh, one of the reasons that a lot of the Silicon Valley people were have been advocating for a UBI is that they see this this new world in which there's all this automation and AI and uh, you'll have lots of people with uh, without uh, without work. And I mean, I know with automation of the vehicle fleet in the United States, for example, that they're talking about the next 10 or 20 years, you could have 3 million people driving trucks who are no longer needed. Yeah. It's going to come quicker than that through what I've just recently seen that um, there's a new robotics company which is taking a very different approach to um, robotics uh, in the workplace, whereas there's two types of, of robots um, or three types. There's a traditional type which is very structured and has to go through very specific steps. There's a new type that has got some spatial awareness and some ability to um, act autonomously but nowhere near the general intelligence required to do sophisticated um, manual handling work and, and so on and making decisions on the fly. Uh, but what this company is doing is saying with high-speed internet now, we can actually globalise the workforce while the worker is the robot in the local economy controlled remotely by somebody anywhere else in the world. And <laughs> yeah. um, that in my mind, is a major, major shift in how our labour markets 
So now, again, I've lost my train of thought. Um, we were talking about robots and being controlled by people remotely. Yeah. It's just um, those um, that new way should see the glo- continued globalisation of the workforce um, despite the relocalization of the production capacity. So we're seeing more and more production capacity relocalized. A lot of it is automated, but still a lot um, would remain under um, with a need to have local people doing many of the jobs. But if a robot can be controlled remotely, then that's a whole different ball game again. So um, yeah. Uh, I think the essence uh, where I differ with um, maybe the, the Silicon Valley tech view, which has been promoting, quotes, a basic income as truly basic and that what you end up with is, a, you know, millions and millions of people just eking out a living and, you know, a terrible society structured with a few earning, you know, huge money and, and the rest eking it out. If we... Um, take the view that the UBI should be set to balance the labour market, then individuals are making their own choice about whether I go off and do other things, creative things, or become more engaged in the community and sport. And I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of things that human beings can do other than work once they actually have the freedom of mind to um, you know, to do that, um, you know, there is the whole issue around work providing meaning, and it does, but there are lots of things that people find meaningful um, uh, which don't necessarily involve paid work, and, and a lot of paid work is hardly meaningful. It can be bloody soul-destroying. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's um, uh, what it does, it allows each person to make their own choice in a market that, uh, where the UBI is set to achieve balance. Okay, we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions, cost-benefit analysis studies, and economic modelling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia, but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the show. So we might go into the the particular plan that you have, Michael. I'm keen to sort of explore that um, because, as you know, I mean, economists are going to be, well, I, I think, Economists are very concerned about the cost of a UBI. They would say that you need to pay for it somehow. There's no free lunch. So that's a maxim of economics. There's no such thing as a free lunch. So would you be able to take us through your concept, please, and explain just how it works? And then, because I, I, I know I've got some questions about it. And yeah, but I want to make sure I understand your the logic first, please. Well, you're absolutely right about no free lunch, um, and the, the I guess the lunch part of it is to do with our actual resources, right? The sandwiches we eat, uh, 
houses we make, the engineers we have, uh, and the chefs available to to do the work. So that is the constraint. And one of the things that um, uh, we've looked at is, as you'd be aware, the whole modern monetary theory, and which doesn't have a good name broadly through the economics profession. And, and I think to some extent rightly so, because unfortunately the way in which it has been pitched is as effectively um, an unlimited flow to government to then make decisions about how the money gets spent into the economy. You then have politicians and bureaucrats, you know, um, with their hands on the, this quotes, unlimited spigot of money and expecting that they're going to make, um, you know, good decisions that um, support the well-being of the whole economy. So we've looked at it different and say, let's go back to, first of all, understand how money gets into the economy. And apart from quantitative easing, which in fact most of the money went into the financial economy, not the real economy, but most of the money, as, as I'm sure your audience knows, gets into the real economy through bank lending. And so as a borrower um, goes to a bank, the bank creates the money, the borrower thinks, says thanks very much and spends it in the economy, creating new activity that would not have occurred had that borrowing not take place because the money is effectively new purchasing power and it redirects our resources. It's the source of growth um, in the economy as businesses borrow and, and others borrow to spend um, into the economy. So if we are creating money for that purpose, then the opportunity is to do the same thing, create money out of thin air, but instead of giving it to borrowers who are obliged to repay it, and so they should because they're getting um, an advantage purchasing power that they haven't created or added to themselves, so they should work, add value out of that value, earn the money to repay the loan. So that works fine. But if we're now going to pay, create money and pay it to every single person to meet their basic needs, then we're able to look at this and say, well, if, um, as an example, we're suggesting that the amount of money should be $500 per week per person. Now, that comes out for 20 million adults, about 520 billion bucks a year. Absolutely, insustain, you know, can't be sustained. Um, but if you offset it against um, the welfare benefit, if you recover a substantial proportion through earned income and um, allow for the fact that some of the money is going to be um, recovered again via tax as the, as the um, economy grows through the spending, some's going to go offshore, some into the financial economy. We think there's about $100 billion net that would get injected into the economy of new money every year, right? Now, some of that can be offset simply by reducing bank lending, right, because bank lending is putting new money into the economy every year. So instead of the new money all going in via bank lending, some of it now would come in through the UBI and we can manage that as we do now by managing interest rates. So as interest rates go up, there'll be less bank lending, but there'll be more UBI coming in, which should continue to ensure the economy maintains full capacity, but 
more of the capacity will be going to meet basic needs and less on other spending. Um, and that'll be, you know, business will have to adapt to that new pattern of demand. And we are suggesting a way to implement that with low risk by starting small. So just 10 bucks a week to start with, paying everybody, ramping up of over five years. So what that does, it allows the supply chain time to adapt to the new pattern of demand without causing shortages that drive inflation. And then you've got, um, at the end of the day, um, more money going in via UBI and less via um, bank loans. Um, if there's a net um, addition, we're still looking to grow the economy three or four percent. Um, we're looking for two to three percent inflation, and a hundred billion dollars in a two trillion economy is about five percent. So we see that um, it ought to be feasible to get to that. 500 bucks a week level with the offsets that we've um, designed in, but um, we don't know, right? And nobody knows and nobody can really model it, but we don't have to model it or guess because if we start small and increase slowly, we can actually see what happens. We can see what's happening in the economy and if it looks like the negatives are starting to outweigh the positives, then we halt it and address the negatives. Um, my feeling is that as we talked about the, the benefits to the individuals and the many other benefits, we will see uh, a wealth of positives and that'll encourage us to actually speed up the rollout rather than uh, cut it back. But we don't have to guess because we can um, actually you know, see what happens. So that's um, how we're looking to implement it. Um, and I haven't spoken in detail about the, the uh, offset and the recovery, but, yeah, I'll leave you to ask the yeah. questions now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that recovery, I think what you're – one of the things you were talking about is what Ben Phillips was talking about when I spoke with Ben about the clawback. I mean, what is that that recovery as you uh, as you earn money uh, from from work and – how, you know what happens to the UBI payment? I mean, is there any uh, clawback of that? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So what we see is that we don't want to touch welfare as it is, but we'll treat it as income for welfare. So all of the rules and entitlements and everything stay the same, and the same with our tax system. We don't want to touch the tax system because that gets into all sorts of arguments. What we want to do is under the separate authority, Every week they will be paying out every um, the 500 bucks a week to every person, but they will um, appoint the tax department um, as their agent to recover the UBI from people via group tax, the GST system or the annual returns based on a very simple formula that you'll have to pay back 32.26% of your gross income uh, through the tax system in addition to whatever tax you're paying because the tax you're paying relates to your income. The recovery relates to your UBI. So we're going to give you the UBI, but the more you earn, the more you will have to pay back. So that by the time you get to $80,600, everybody earning that and more They'll be getting their 500 bucks a week in and every, 
every week or so over, they're um, paying the 500 bucks back to the authority. That money gets put back in and recirculated in the next cycle. And you say, well, hang on, why, why pay people 500 bucks just to take it back off them? And the answer is because circumstances change overnight. And by paying people the money, it becomes like basic income insurance. It ensures that um, if I suddenly lose my job, I get sick, I have to care for a family member, uh, for whatever reason, my income is suddenly lost. A pandemic comes along, there's floods, fires, storms, whatever throws people into, um, you know, or they get divorced, that money is there coming in. And now when I've lost my income, there's no more recovery. So I'm getting the full amount. There's no delay. There's no need to apply. And then when I find I'm in a position to look again for work, um, I can do it without having to go and tell anybody. I don't have to tell anybody, you know, what I'm doing to get it or whether I'm retraining myself. Um, I don't have to tell anybody how much I'm earning or any details at all other than, of course, the tax department. Uh, which I normally have to do, and through that tax department, once I start earning again, the recovery would start to take place. But, again, I'm better off because whatever I'm earning, um, unless the tax, is on top of um, the net that I get out of the UBI. So up until $80,600, I am going to be better off uh, by having the UBI and we think that covers probably 75% of the population and the other 25% are no worse off, which is why I said earlier, we don't see this as a redistribution. What we see it is as a way of, of providing people with the means to express their needs in the market and for the market to respond to meeting those needs without taking anything off any, anybody else. You know, you could say that, if interest rates are going up, then people are unable to borrow as much as they might have. But on the other side, the money that's going into the economy is going in debt-free and that money will, therefore, as it flows through the economy um, to um, profits and investment, it'll um, help the economy to grow and stabilise without the need for such high levels of increasing debt. So um, we see that's also an advantage for the economy. Yeah, okay. So I think that argument would be more persuasive if we did have this high level of technological unemployment, if we had these a large amount of unemployed resources, and that argument's going to be more persuasive. I guess the concern well, that economists would have is that, well, if you've got an economy that's operating near full employment, as you could argue the Australian economy is now, then we don't really necessarily want to be adding that additional demand to it because it could be inflationary. So inflation, concerns about inflation will be one of the major concerns about this right, proposal. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, so you're right. And... That's why we are proposing um, to start small because mm. at 10 bucks a week, that is really a big deal for somebody living in poverty. That's food for a day. 
So it mightn't seem much to you and I or to most people, but at 10 bucks a week it's a start, but it's not going to destroy the economy. It's not going to, you know, cause havoc. But in a quarter's time, we would see that being increased by $25 a week. So people are now getting 35 bucks a week. That's a bit more. And we can see what is happening. Our expectation is that um, while there are inflationary pressures, they're in specific parts of the economy. And for things like food and clothing um, and some of the basics, the opportunity is there for businesses to redirect resources, right? At the moment, you've got cafes and people like that crying out for labour and, and so on. But um, if the resources are directed towards um, meeting more basic needs because people now have the money to express those needs, we would simply see over time a shift in the way the economy is structured, which is why we are wanting to do it slowly. So over five years, you know, otherwise you put 500 bucks a week into the economy, even with the clawbacks, um, you know, it, it would create havoc, as we have seen, with the disruptions due to um, the pandemic and, and now the war, um, where you alter the supply chain um, overnight, literally, um, it creates bottlenecks that are really hard to manage. Uh, I was once manufacturing for manager for Toyota so, and also on the board of the Australian Logistics Council and, and ran a, a major logistics company in my day. So I really understand how the supply chain works and you can't just turn a tap on and say, okay, now people start spending this money and expect it to just um, flip overnight. But you can expect it to change over a period of five years. And um, in that time, we are going to see more and more automation. And the UBI, in fact, could uh, assist in um, um, you know, helping firms to, to automate because there'll be a number of factors in play. Um, you will have people who are getting the UBI who now say, well, I'm you know, not going to work. I'm happy to live on the UBI, so the labour market might tighten. But you also might have people who are you know, saying, well, I've now got the UBI as a base. I'll actually take on this extra work, which wasn't previously worth my while because of the benefits I lost, but now I'll take it on. Um, and the, the automation um, pressures might come in that interplay. We don't know whether there's going to be more people wanting that extra work or, or less. But over time, regardless of what people are doing in terms of offering themselves to the labour market, it's clear that there is going to be more and more automation and virtualization. So virtualization is a hidden factor in that you don't realise what you don't have. And if you look at what the uh, all of the devices that the smartphone replaced, there's a huge amount of what used to be physical work and effort in producing all the goods that's now all done by software on a little phone. And that's just going to continue now. And um, so we are going to see this automation play out um, more and more. 
Yeah. Well, remember when there used to be Kodak uh, processing centers all over the country, all over the world, right? And uh, don't have those anymore. Yeah, no. Uh, Right. Okay. Now, one of the other things I want to ask about, Michael, is this uh, you you do recognise rightly that your proposal is leading to an expansion of the money supply. And uh, look, you're right about bank lending and what it uh, means for the money supply. That That's correct. There's a Bank of England article about that, and I'll, I'll link to that on money creation, the, the money, modern, the, sorry, modern, modern That creation. is the best article. Yeah. Um, I, I'd sort of looked at, you know, when I said I was back in the, in the 1980s, one of the things that I, realisation I came to was actually how money was created. And Talking to economists back in those days, I was absolutely, you know, um, shot because um, until that Bank of England paper came out, there was often not the recognition of just how money was created. And so, yes, I really appreciate you making that link because it is such a good, clear, concise paper. Yeah, money creation in the modern economy. I think I mangled it before I mispronounced it. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, well, I think, yeah, there was this debate in the 60s and 70s about monetarism and uh, and there were economists at the time who were pointing out that uh, money was actually endogenous to the economy and that it was associated with uh, the actions of banks and and people borrowing money from banks and I think who was it was it Nicholas Caldor who was one of the famous Cambridge economists who was a student of uh, John Maynard Keynes whereas Friedman I mean I I think a lot of what Friedman I think Friedman made a lot of great contributions but he was probably off track a bit where he was assuming almost that the money supply was this exogenous um, variable that was. Uh, that could be controlled uh, easily by the central bank. Now, central banks obviously they they can can they can influence it, but it's is not necessarily. Yeah, it's it's not easy to control. And so, one of the things that um, we would see is that the new authority with the central bank, um, as the um, UBI was raised, um, it's very important that because that. UBI is now signalling new demand that firms um, and individuals be able to borrow to increase capacity to meet that demand. And we don't want the cost of that borrowing to go up. And so what we would want is for individual banks on a case-by-case basis under guidelines making decisions to say, well, your loan is actually, you're asking for this loan to um, you know, help increase our capacity to meet the basic needs of, of our citizens. So you're going to get this at, at no extra cost. But if you're borrowing for other, we'll say, non-essential purposes, then we want that um, borrowing to be reduced to free up resources to shift across to meeting more basic needs. And so the cost for you to borrow is going to go up, right? Now, this is a whole different way of thinking about it. It's it's applying a premium on top of a set of loans rather than increasing the base, which is what we do with the cash rate. And so let's take an example of how that could work, say, in housing, right? 
at the moment, housing um, starts, prices go up and the bank starts to worry. We're into a, an inflationary period. We've got to, you know, crunch it and increase interest rates. Well, that increases interest rates for everybody, including the poor little guy who's got his, you know, his highly productive business, but now it's pushing him on the margin when really all we want to do is we want to increase the supply of houses and reduce the price pressures in the housing market. And the way to do that is very simple to say, well, um, you will have to, if you're going to borrow for an existing home, you're going to have to pay an extra margin. And that margin won't go to the bank, it'll go to the central bank. It's there purely to uh, dissuade you from borrowing for an existing home. We're not going to charge anything extra on the cost to create a new home because that's what we want. We want new homes built. And so what it does is it depresses the price of existing homes um, in favour of new builds. And so, again, this is, I guess, outside the whole UBI <laughs> debate, but, again, we would see that treating the money as a essential part of the driver of economic activity and making specific decisions about what it is that we as a society want. We want, for example, basic needs met and we want houses built to meet accommodation needs. And so we ought to be able to make those high-level targets and aims but leave then the market to sort out where it's done and how it's done and, and what's provided based purely on the availability of funds made um, at specific interest rates under those guidelines. So um, it's um, what I'm talking about here I don't think is entirely necessary for the UBI to be put in place. Um, as a um, starting small and growing it because we can do that um, whatever happens in the broader economy because at any point we can stop increasing it. So we might under normal circumstances not get to the poverty line, but we'll get somewhere. If we then begin to think about how else we can manage this broader economy to rebalance the inflow from uh, borrowing and the UBI, then I think we can um, get to that poverty level with uh, maintaining full employment, maintaining full economic activity without um, high inflation. And um, that's we've got plenty of time to sort of sort through that. Um, we are aiming for, um, we would like to see a government not in this parliament, but in three or four years' time at the beginning of the next parliament, agree to implement it, and that might be 2025 and it wouldn't be fully implemented to 2030, so in that intervening period to then discuss these other mechanisms to refine them and test them and talk them through. So um, we don't want to hold up the UBI until we've sorted out all these other problems because we think that um, the low-risk way of implementing it um, should address concerns regardless of uh, what the final decisions are.
Right, okay. Look, that's um that's given me a lot to think about, Michael. Uh yeah. No, did this issue this idea of yours of uh well you have to intervene in the in bank lending, so you you have the, you're trying to control the growth of the money supply by um I mean you need to increase the cost of borrowing for you're saying that you'll just have that limited to uh, borrowing for existing property. Now, that's a lot of the borrowing that does occur. Yeah. Right. Um, but then you'd say that you would have it that they wouldn't be able to. I mean, I'm just got. I'm just trying to think about how this would how this would work in practice. I mean, I mean, are you saying that there's a particular interest rate you have to lend to well, to people who want to build a new house or buy a, a new house? So the the market, whatever the cash rate is at the moment, right? there is a market rate for lending. And so yeah. the idea is that you don't interfere with that, right, um, that what you do then is simply say, well, we want to discourage certain types of lending and borrowing because it's not achieving our overall economic objective, right? Our overall economic objective is, A, to meet our basic needs and we want business focused on doing that so it's not a socialist um, uh, method of, of providing the goods and services. It's simply targeting the money to drive uh, the market. And so we're saying that the, um, yeah, we would need to have banks be given some guidelines and they only need to be broad guidelines about the types of uh, lending we want to promote and the types of lending we want to discourage and then seeing what happens in the market that if interest rates are increased by an extra margin that then goes to the Reserve Bank, if those interest rates start to really negatively impact the economy, just like increasing interest rates do anyway, um, at some point you would then say, okay, well, that's enough. We're not going to do any more. Um, we've achieved as much as we can do because to go any further now might end up pushing us into recession. And, in fact, the, our feeling is that the Reserve Bank is never going to get it right. We are going to go through these cycles that we already have. Um, they'll push it too far. It'll start to go into recession. But with the UBI, we can make that a very shallow recession, just like we did with JobKeeper. We put the money into the people. It keeps them going. It keeps the economy going. So uh, we will still have swings and roundabouts, but they should be less um, severe than we've seen in the past using the UBI to uh, as a floor. Mm. Oh, it's an interesting concept. I mean, I think. I mean, I'd, I'd like to, yeah, just look at it a bit more closely and think about how how it all work. I mean, I think you've got the right idea. You'd you'd start it off low and you'd you'd experiment with it just to see how it actually works in in practice i mean my natural inclination is a, a, against uh intervening in the in in the banks in that way to say well we think you should be doing that lending rather than uh, rather than this other lending i mean because who's the the bank should be making that decision based on what it thinks is uh, is sensible. It should be looking at well, what's uh, what's 
you know, can the person actually afford this alone? What, you know, uh, is am I, are we going to get our money back? Um, and they should be they should be charging uh, for that based on the cost of their funds, right? I mean, so what you say is true, Gene. All of that process should still happen. The difference is that instead of the cost of funds being pushed up from the bottom across all lending, it would be um, added to on the top. So the banks will still be making their same margin that they would have because instead of having to pay a higher cost of funds, their cost of funds won't have changed. They will be making the same decision to lend to the same people. But the person who is borrowing will now have to factor in that in addition to paying the bank's interest, I've now got to pay this extra margin. And that will dissuade some people from borrowing. If it dissuades some people from borrowing, that means that there is less money that is being created through the banking system going into the economy. Now, that um, is what we want because we are at the same time putting money into the economy through the UBI. And there should simply be, over time, a shift in productive capacity from spending more on basics and less on whatever else would have been done. So it is a, um, it is a policy decision of um, society to say, yes, we want everybody in our society to have their basic needs met as a priority for any other things that the money might be spent on. And the reason is because we have now created this wonderful system of property rights, money and paid work, which is delivering huge value for us. But in its design at the moment, it is forcing uh, uh, millions of people, millions of people into poverty. And we don't want that. So it is a policy decision, right? And once we make that decision, I believe the economy will chug on even better than it has because you've now got a demand being expressed that was previously latent. And that's bad for the people who miss out on the goods and services. It's bad for the businesses who could meet that demand. And ultimately, it's bad for society. Mm. um, So, yeah, look, it's... We recognise that this is not going to be a a simple discussion, but hoping over the next three years to get um, one of the major parties at least, if not both, to uh, begin to seriously examine it with a a view to, as, as we said, implementing it not in the upcoming parliament but the one after and um, that... um, you know, taking this slow approach um, should make people feel comfortable that it is a, a pretty low-risk strategy for what potentially could be massive, massive benefits. Right. Okay. So I've got two more questions, then we might wrap up. Yep. Just on the the cost of it, and you talk about this authority and I think you're suggesting that this could be off budget. Now, have you had any advice on this or have you talked to any statisticians about this issue? Because it it just seems to me that this is effectively government spending. This is a a transfer payment and therefore 
under the the guidelines from the IMF from on government finance statistics, it should strictly be counted as government spending. So, have you thought about that? I mean, do you have or have you had any advice on that? You're right. Um, this hasn't been um, an issue up until now, and so there isn't a neat place to put it. But the way um, I try to characterise it is to say, look, um, new money is created under the banking system, under the auspices of uh, the Reserve Bank and and the other banking authorities. And so it's government um, regulated, but the money when it's created goes to individuals who spend it. And that money, even though it's created under the auspices of the government, is not treated as government spending because it isn't government spending, it's spending by individuals. And the same thing here, that what we're doing is that we're reducing the amount of money that is spent by individuals through bank borrowings and increasing the money spent by individuals through direct payments to them of new money. So it's not transferred, it's not come out of tax, it's not come out of anybody. It is just like the bank lending new money, but um, it's now going to everybody to meet their basic needs. And so this does require a different um, categorization, a different way of thinking. And you're right, probably as, as things stand, people will struggle, Jean, with, with coming to grips with that. But, um, you know, if we don't regard bank lending as government spending, why should we regard spending by individuals who are not being directed by the government, it's not supplying government goods and services, it's not coming out of the hands of taxpayers, it is new money created by the Reserve Bank, just like it's new money created by the banks for the borrowers. Okay. I, I, I can tell you what the economists will argue. And I mean, I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily want to be negative about this because I've, I'm trying to be open minded. But what they will argue is that how you're paying for this in part is, is through an inflation tax. So that's one way that you would be paying for that because there's this, you know, there's the money creation uh, and in the long term that will be inflationary. And so there's a transfer of resources from uh, between households because they're, you know, because with the inflation, that's going to be reducing the value of money holdings of other households in the economy. So there is this, that's why economists, I think, would argue that there is a redistribution and it's being paid for by an inflation tax. So I think that's what they would come back with. I, and it is, yeah, it, 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 they would just argue it is effectively, it's similar to government, a government transfer payment. And, and you're, you're right to the extent that it is inflationary, but as you would know, we're, we're looking for some amount of inflation, um, maybe 2 to 3% in order to maintain a sort of a, um, a forward-looking economy. Um, and we're also looking for 2 to 3 to 4% growth. And that amount of money has to be to, to support that inflation target and that um, growth Money has to get into that. New money has to get into the economy, and so at the moment it's coming in 
virtually all through bank lending, through newly created money, uh, driving additional activity. And so what we're saying is that, yes, there would be a redistribution then, not out of um, the past earnings or the, the past wealth, so we're not taking it away from your earning capacity or out of the wealth that you have, what we would be doing is shifting your, the ability of some people to borrow and get new money versus uh, um, the payment directly to people um, without borrowing. And so that certainly will result in a shift in economic activity, but it's a prospective shift it's not a not a past shift uh, or a current shift um, because you're um, restricting people's ability to borrow for the future, and um, so it is a, a slightly different um, view. Um, but you know, even if that view isn't accepted, then we would be arguing that the amount of inflation is um, not excessive if given uh, our $100 billion a year net payment uh, is the total um, amount being put into the economy every year, which is about 5% of our GDP. And, um, but beyond all of that, we are suggesting that by starting small, we don't have to theorise, we don't have to guess we can actually see what happens. And um, if, you know, through automation and through other uh, adaptive means, the supply chain shifts to provide extra um, basics, we might find that um, that extra capacity is generated over five years without changing anything, right, that the economy will continue to grow with people borrowing for new housing and everything happening um, and people won't even notice the shift because um, the economy is continuing to operate at full capacity. Right. Okay. Um, well, I, I think, yeah, it, it would be an experiment. It would be, uh, I mean, I'm not entirely sure what would happen. I mean, I've got my suspicions of how it would play out, but I think it's something that you would want you, you know you to to get the best evidence i mean you really need to implement it right you're not you, this is something that's would be very difficult to model um uh so uh yeah uh, so i think that's good you want to start out small just on the bank lending the other point i'd make is that the bank lending as you noted it's uh is accompanied by a requirement that it's paid back by the household so as the so the money the money supply expands with the bank lending, and it but then the, it yeah as the households pay it back then that's uh, that's pulling it back in. So it's the net uh, of advances versus repayments that actually yeah. drives the growth. So over time, if you've got more new lending than you have repayments, you've got a net extra going in. And so we would see that, um, you know, people are still going to borrow for homes. They're going to borrow for all sorts of reasons as they do now. And we don't want to, um, uh, we don't want to stop that anything any more than uh, the banks, the central bank now looks at housing prices and other prices and says, look, things are heating up too much. We've got to quiet it down. 
So the same approach would exist except hopefully a bit more targeted and with an additional tool, which is the UBI, to keep lifting the flora so that we don't um, send the, the economy into the dire depths that sometimes occurs when the banks, <laughs> central banks get it wrong and they go too far. So um, yeah. we're, we're not changing that approach. Uh, we're changing the way in which the tweaks are done to some extent. Okay. Now, finally, yeah, there were actually two things I wanted to sort of ask. Uh, one was about poverty, and you were mentioning uh, several million yes. in poverty. I, I'm interested in where you get that that impression from. I mean, I know that there are certainly households who are doing it tough. Yeah, I, I just well, want to understand because I, I know a lot of people will go, well, hang on, there are a lot of the, – the problem with our poverty definition is that it's relative and – and we're off. We're often overcounting the number of people who are in poverty. So I'm just interested in that. And and second, did you think about whether this sort of thing could be funded with a wealth tax or inheritance tax, or are you just against that that sort of thing? Well, I'll ask the last one. Answer the last one. Okay. Please. Look, if if somebody can get it up with you know a carbon tax, a wealth tax, income tax, GST, that's great, right? Our concern is that if we go that route, um, you are setting up um, oppositions and arguments and having a fight that really is unnecessary Um, because if we do it as we're suggesting and starting small, we don't have to say to anybody other than possibly some um, borrowers that it's going to impact you negatively at all. There's going to be a lot of people that's going to impact positively, but we're not going to have any negative impact. So we're removing that fight. But, um, yeah, I'd be happy if anybody can get up a tax to partly fund it, then that means that there is a less pressure on managing the money supply through bank lending, right? So... um, yeah, it's um, not out of the question, but it's not vital. Um, as, as for the poverty stats, I'll send you the link. I haven't got it on the top of my head, but um, it's come through, I think, um, might have been Anglicare or Uniting or somewhere who are looking at the stats based on their data for people who are looking for charity and support. And as I've said, it's, it's mostly single women with kids Mm. Um, aged, disabled, their family who are caring for them without any pay and people who are literally between jobs while they have no work, they've got no savings and they've got no family support. And when you add up all those people at any, and it's, this is why it's a system problem and not a um, moral failing because the people in that group constantly change. The kids grow up. Um, the disabled age, the age die, the unpaid carers um, and, the, and the jobless find work, but they're replaced by a new cohort continually. And to, so despite 30 years of, of continuous growth up until the, the um, pandemic, um, that percentage of population has hardly budged. So all those factors show that it is a system problem and the UBI tackles that problem at root. 
um, by providing the money to allow people to express their needs in the market. So it's not a socialist <laughs> um, ideology driving it. It's a market ideology because in order for people to participate in the market, they need money. Yeah. Now, yeah, there's certainly people who are falling through the cracks of our existing welfare system. Uh, I mean, just look at the growing number of homeless people in Australia. Um, so, yeah, certainly people who are... Well, I mean, who could live on, what is it, 43 bucks a day? You know? So we're talking about the job seeker payment, yeah. are we? Yeah. yeah. I mean, who mm. could live on that? I mean, it's just nonsense. And, but as we said, there is a rationale for it. It's not because people in government are cruel by nature. Um, it's evidenced when the job seeker and the job, or say the job seeker supplement was being paid, the, the employers are saying, hang on, I've got young kids and others here, who are, they're not prepared to work because they're getting all this money. And so you drop the money and now they suddenly are looking for a job. And that's all rational behaviour. It's rational behaviour by the people who want to stay on the benefits rather than work and it's rational behaviour by the government to say, well, we've got to create the, these at, at, at poverty level. But what it does indirectly, um, as I say, push all of these people who can't do paid work into poverty. And that is an indictment on our current system. And... Um, you know, we can solve it. We've got the resources. We've got the means of creating the money. We've got a means to manage the way in which the money goes into the economy without creating excessive inflation. And we can keep um, the economy at full capacity, which is in the interest of business, by um, allowing over time a shift in the pattern of uh, production to meet the, the new um needs that are evidenced by the UBI. Okay. I mean, what I would say in response to that, Michael, is that, I mean, that is your your hope for the the policy. I mean, as you've mentioned, you'd roll this out, you'd start off small, and then we'd test whether that would be the case or not. Uh, because, I mean, economists, as I've mentioned, they're going to be concerned that, well, this is inflationary, this is modern monetary theory, yeah, uh, and, and in effect, you'll, yeah. Okay, well, all of okay. that I agree 100% with, Gene. Okay, and that's okay. why if we can do it slowly, then there should be no reason why. Um, in effect, what we've had is lots of pilots around the, the world where it's been focused um, on a particular group of people or a particular region and it's been set at a level which from day one is regarded as adequate for whatever the purpose of the policy are, but people look at it and say, well, just put that across the whole of the country and who knows what's happening. So by mm. starting small, we are effectively doing a proper pilot at a national level to see what are the impacts. And at a very low level, they're probably zero negative and plenty of good impacts. And as we increase, we can determine <laughs> are the negatives becoming you know unsustainable here and and if they are then we better halt it um, keep the UBI at the level with whatever we've reached and look at well can we countermeasure these problems and go forward or is that it as so if we gone as high as we can go so we've not taken away any um, welfare so whatever level we get to is better than it was we've not 
increased anybody taxes. So again, there's been no negative as a result of that um, uh, step. And uh, up until that stage too, we're not even saying to the banks to change their lending practices. We're not changing any of the interest rate margins um, or adding any extra um, margin on top. So we're just paying the benefit and seeing what happens. Okay. So, Michael, any final words before we conclude? <laughs> I, think, I think you've exhausted me. I'm, I'm, okay. I have um, been able to give you something of a, an insight, but there are a series of, I think, about seven articles that I've now written on Medium and um, I'll send you a link to the first article and each article then links to the next, which hopefully is a bit more coherent than I've managed (laughs) in our discussion, Um, having lost my train of thought a few times. But, um, yeah, the the articles ought to spell out what um, I've been trying to explain here and... um, Yes, I really look forward to hearing from your audience, um, their feedback um, and, um, you know, whatever concerns that they might have, I will certainly be looking to um, take them on board and uh, and see how we might address them. And maybe another day, Gene, in the future, we can look at those um, and come back and have a talk about them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... uh... I know there's a lot of interest among listeners in this uh, topic and it was suggested by one of my listeners and and then I had Ben on and then I've had other people get in touch and I know that there certainly is a lot of uh, interest. So, yes, (laughs) sorry about exhausting you, but I wanted to chat about it because it's an interesting proposal and it's innovative and you have thought about the implications of it. So now while I might sort of might disagree on whether you know this would be a good thing to do or not you i i understand that you actually have thought about it and in your judgment this is the right way to do it now that i think that's good you've thought through the implications of it and what you'd have to do to manage it and and that was the discussion we had about bank lending so um look uh yeah it's given me a lot to to think about and uh and if you're listening in the audience and you've got thoughts on the proposal, then then please get in touch and I'll I'll pass them on to Michael. And, and Michael, as you've suggested, we could possibly talk again. Well, that would be really appreciated, Gene, after we get the feedback from your listeners um, because that will be valuable for me as well because, as I said, I'm now beginning to talk to uh, people in the political parties and whatever views your listeners express I'm going to encounter in those broader discussions and um, having uh, as they say uh, forewarned is forearmed so um, yeah I really really appreciate the the opportunity to chat with you um, Gene and um, thank you. Oh pleasure okay Michael Haynes uh, thanks so much for your time really appreciate it. Thank you Gene all the best bye. Okay, that's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week. Goodbye.